right, man. Welcome to the introduction for episode of Crow Triple Seven Radio uh, 125. Jason Lingren is with me, and we have back uh, a very popular guest, Wayne McCroy. Uh, of all the episodes we've done recently, there is so much critical information laid down that has to do with transhumanism, cybernetics, transgenderism, um, and really centrally autism, and how it was all implemented and drawing the lines with regard to intent and where this goes in the near future. Uh, Wayne McCroy, the research that he's done, in my view, is par excellence. It's right up there with as good as anything or better than we've seen because it reads between the lines. It draws the line to the natural world. It draws the line to alchemy. And then it takes all the disparate symptoms. Most people see autism and think that's one symptom. Well, here in this episode, we start to draw the line to show that it's much more than a symptom. It is part of the overall issues that face us. And we will draw those lines. Uh, this is so, there, there is so much information packed in this first hour that it's, it's kind of mind-bending. Anyhow, let's jump in with Jason and Wayne McCroy for episode 125. And at, at the very end of the day, the very core center of what we're about to cover is autism. But you will be astounded with the things that surround it. There it is, man. Cheers. All right, man. Welcome to Crow Triple Seven Radio. This is episode 125. I have Jason Lingren with me and Wayne McCroy again. Uh, very popular last time he was on with us. Welcome, Jason. Good morning, Crow. How's it, man? How's it in your part of the world? Beautiful, beautiful day here. How about you? I cannot complain, and if I did, it wouldn't matter. Let's get Wayne in. Welcome, Wayne. Good morning, gentlemen. How are you? We're both good, as you heard. Uh, I'll tell you what, I've been going through what we're about to cover here, Wayne, and it's very interesting. But before we get started, are you working on, any on anything? Do you have contact points online or anything you'd like to throw out to the general public before we get started here in hour one? The contact points I could be reached at online is uh, I could be reached at Gmail, the alchemical tech revolution at gmail.com. I could also be reached on Facebook at my Facebook page, Files from the Conspiratorium. Also, my book, my first book, The Alchemical Tech Revolution, is available through Amazon and many other fine book retailers. Uh, I also have been uh, posting more videos and stuff to my YouTube channel recently. Uh, that one's called Alchemical Tech Revolution, if anybody wants to look up those start points. Currently working on my second book, and that's what a lot of this will entail today. Okay, I know you're a member in the forums over at crow777radio.com, so I would request, Wayne, uh, that you put links to all the information you just recited for membership over at crow777radio.com, if that is suitable for you. Okay. All right, Jason, you want to you wanna kick this ball down the road? You want to take the first swing here? Absolutely. So, let's start off with the easy one, Wayne. And this is something we've discussed many, many times on this show, and, and we actually did it on the uh, the new live show as well. What is transhumanism? First used by Julian Huxley. Let's hear it in your words, though. All right, actually, let's go ahead and hear it first from the uh, horse's mouth himself, Julian Huxley's words. I have the quote here, and I quote, this is actually from a paper that Julian Huxley wrote back in 1957, which was titled Transhumanism. And this is the uh, first usage of the word that I could find back in the historical record. And I quote, The human species can, if it wishes, transcend itself, not just sporadically, an individual here in one way, an individual there in another way, but its entirety as humanity. We need a name for this new belief. Perhaps transhumanism will serve. Man remaining man, but transcending himself by realizing new possibilities of and for his human nature. End quote. That was Julian Huxley, 1957. All right, I've got two questions here, Wayne. One really quick. Um, I'm looking at the notes and I'm seeing Aldous. Can you please clue in the audience? Is there a difference between Aldous and Julian Huxley? Yes, yes, there are. Uh, that was actually a mistake that I, I when I was typing up the notes. Uh, Aldous Huxley is actually Julian Huxley's brother, and these two were involved in a whole lot of social engineering. Right, so that was going to lead me into where I was going next. Jason and I have done plenty of work, um, and believe it or not, the Macy's organization, uh, the department store Macy's, is, is in at the ground level of all this. We track what's called cybernetics back to well before the 50s. I don't remember whether it was the 30s or the 40s. I think it might have been the late 30s. Um, I would have to go back and check. But do you see an initial seed before the word transhumanism is ever used in the idea of cybernetics? Do you see a crossover there? I certainly do. And also another interesting link I would point out is also, as you're uh, dating the uh, whole cybernetics start point back into the 1930s or so, that's also 
uh, around the same time that the whole idea of autism started to take hold. So there's an interesting crossover link right there. All right. So let's just back up for one second. You gave a definition which danced around uh, what I consider to be the literal definition of transhumanism. In your own words, can you very specifically state what transhuman is so the average listener will understand? I mean, are we talking about the Terminator? Are we talking about the bionic man? What are we talking about in layman's terms when we say transhumanism? Okay, my definition that I would give of transhumanism is the merging of man and machine to create a whole new organism, something beyond human, human plus, if you will. And that's actually a term that they banty about among themselves with it. So uh, they're looking at merging with computers and machines and becoming something transcendent of man. Essentially, they want to become God. And this ties back to a lot of the mystery school roots, too. This is uh, all part of their plan. This is their achievement of the Philosopher's Stone or the great work. So, so in my view, Wayne, um, and correct me if you think I'm misguided here, when we first hear the term cybernetics way back in maybe as far as the 30s, the 40s possibly, um, and we start to come up to Julian Huxley's use in the 50s of the words transhumanism, in modern culture, we get things like Steve Austin, the bionic man, right? This is kind of a version of that. Then later on, we get the Terminator, Arnold. But you see, there's a big jump between these two ideas, right? One of them has basically just been enhanced with machines, but by the time we get up to the Terminator, it's all digital, isn't it? There's computers um, being the brains of things and and networking uh, across populations, these kinds of ideas. Would you agree with all that? I certainly would. In fact, how it's all playing out is the, the artificial intelligence will actually be the primary thing in control when it's all said and done. They plan on merging the consciousness of man with the artificial intelligence. And when it's all said and done, it'll be more artificial than it will be natural. And uh, the intelligence in charge will definitely be something that is uh, not what I would consider human. Now, from the research we've done, I would think that transhumanism came out of eugenics, which of course started really big in the 1920s. Would you concur with that? I would. Actually, if you look at the Huxley brothers, they were uh, huge proponents of, uh, of eugenics. And uh, also, even if you start looking back into Darwinian evolution and that, that whole philosophy behind that, that's all the same thing. That's all based out of eugenics. This is where all this uh, so-called science comes from, this uh, evolutionary science, which I, I don't honestly put any stock in myself. I believe it's all a bunch of nonsense. But this is what the mainstream science community is pushing. They push this Darwinian evolution, and that's a lot to do with this whole transhumanist push, is because they believe that this is the next step in human evolution. Well, it's kind of funny. We kind of got Darwinism and dinosaurs in the same breath back in the day, but let's tee up an easy one here just so people can get a frame of reference. Um, Aldous Huxley is famous. Uh, Can you refresh the the listener's memory? What books did Aldous Huxley write that might uh, ring a bell with listeners? He's was a quite a prolific writer. Both the Huxley brothers were prolific writers, but I believe all this is the one that wrote Brave New World, if I'm not mistaken. And he also wrote Brave New World Revisited, which was a nonfiction review of Brave New World, which uh, kind of touched upon what aspects of it were coming to pass. Right. And so we, Jason and I, endlessly on this show have pointed to three books, Brave New World being one of them, as a bit of a blueprint, almost foreshadowing an outcome they're aiming for. And when you put everything we're about to talk about with the things we've talked about in in the past and then link it to major corporations like Macy's. And how major is Macy's? Go out in your local neighborhood right now and go to a mall. Do you remember all the big stores that used to be in a mall? Well, many malls are closing, but in almost every single big mall that still exists, you will find a Macy's with that big red star blazing in your face. Anyhow, Jason, I'm going to kick it back over to you to let us keep going down the road. So, Wayne, next point you wanted to bring up here is post-genderism, and how does that tie in with transhumanism? Okay, post-genderism. Let's explain what post-genderism is. And this is actually uh, from a, a white paper called Post-Genderism Beyond the Gender Binary. And here's a definition. It says, quote, Post-genderism is an extrapolation of ways technology is eroding the biological, psychological, and social role of gender, and an argument for why the erosion of binary gender will be liberatory, end quote. So basically what this is saying in a nutshell is they want to end the concept of gender. 
this is where the whole transgender agenda is going. It's it's one step of the Overton window towards post-genderism, which I would say, if you see the term post-genderism, this could be considered to be synonymous with transhumanism. So this is a code word for transhuman. Post-gender is a, a code word for transhuman. So if you keep that in mind, you could look and see where this whole agenda is heading. The dark undertones and the idea of post-genderism echo back to Huxley's book, Brave New World, don't they? In that book, they've got everyone drugged, so they're happy to be where they are. But what I would point out is the idea of how human beings replicate, how new human beings get made in the Brave New World. And I think that's really where post-genderism is headed. It seeks to control everything, um, including how humans reproduce. And I just want to add that in. And it's funny you should mention that, Croak, because this same white paper that I just quoted from actually says that in the very next paragraph is that people will be able to choose if and how they want to reproduce through things like artificial wombs and, and things of that nature. So, uh, yeah, it definitely all ties together. And this is, uh, like I said, just a code word for transhumanism. Well, one, one of the things, I mean, I would urge everyone to read things like Brave New World, Animal Farm. You can read Animal Farm in about two hours. Um, books like this, 1984, is maybe the bleakest view of the possible future of where transgenderism, where transhumanism, where kind of the new world order idea, that's, that's where it heads. But in the Huxley book, uh, when we get to human replication or human beings having offspring, um, there are classes of people. There are un unattractive people. There are lower echelons there are very attractive people and this is all planned out before a baby is ever created but anyhow back to you jason go ahead so this is tying in with something i've been saying for a while now that is that they are trying to take people from being males and females he and she and turning it into it that's all we're going to be we're going to be a whole bunch of it's and this ties in with the whole merging with machines thing and all that because you don't have to be a male or a female and as you were saying about reproduction you don't have to have a certain gender to have to reproduce so they're trying to turn us into these what what is it that they call it wayne is it non-binary where you don't have a particular gender you just kind of are whatever you want to be at the time Right. That is another term that they use for it is uh, non-binary. But that kind of encapsulates the whole different <laughs> transgender, LBGTQRS, whatever they have now. That encapsulates that whole movement. So what they plan on doing is kind of combining all of these into something that is a non-gender. So post-genderism. That's why it's after gender. It's beyond gender. Right. So it, they're, they're trying to eliminate gender altogether from the equation. And let's even think about that term, binary. <laughs> Ones and zeros. <laughs> Gotta tech it up, don't they? So, so basically what we're saying here is the, the, the end game for these types of kind of perverted ideas flies in the face of nature. Everything in the world, with very few exceptions, anything we could call an animal or a mammal or <laughs> a living being, um, there are two genders, and this is how we get more of any given living thing. So it absolutely flies in the face of nature. Absolutely, it does. All right, so next thing you wanted to mention, Wayne, is autism. What is autism? Defining its origins in the works of Leo Kanner and Hans Asperger. Okay, let's uh, look at a basic uh, definition of what autism is. Autism is a spectrum disorder wherein uh, there are many different symptoms that uh, will exhibit themselves, and they vary from individual to individual. But uh, one of the keys that really defines what autism is is the lack of social interaction skills that a lot of these people have. They have communication difficulties, and they also have hypersensitivities. And uh, that basically is what autism is. A lot of people will mistake autism for being a lack of intelligence as well, but the vast majority of uh, autistic people actually have average or above intelligence. In fact, uh, Leo Kanner, one of the pioneers of this work, in his uh, groundbreaking study that he did, one of the individuals in that study that had autism had an IQ of 140. So uh, it's, it's a misnomer that people equate autism with a lack of intelligence. That's not the case at all. And what have you found about autism, really? Like, how far does it go back that mainstream science was studying it? What have you found? What have you been going through? And how different was it decades ago compared to now? 
let's take a look back at the first use of the word autism. And uh, Crow, if you'd like to count the ways on this, the first use of the, of the word autism came in 1911. Of course so, it did. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I figured you would, you would pick up on that whole uh, numerology thing with that. But yeah, the first uh, time it was used, it was used in 1911, and it was used in the context of being used to describe a subset of different symptoms of a patient with schizophrenia. But this wasn't an individual uh, diagnosis at the time. It wasn't until uh, the 1930s when uh, Leo Kanner and Hans Asperger first started uh, recognizing this condition as something separate from schizophrenia, because up until that point, it was just kind of considered like a precursor of, of schizophrenia when they saw uh, these symptoms and stuff in children. So uh, they didn't consider it its own thing. So uh, when Leo Kanner came along, he's the one that kind of laid the, the foundation and the groundwork for uh, what the diagnosis of autism could be. And uh, one of the interesting aspects of this is Leo Kanner, uh, in his groundbreaking paper that he wrote about, about it, uh, found a correlation between autism and vaccination. And that's something you won't hear the mainstream ever talk about. <laughs> wow. Of course not. So I want to ask a question here. Uh, I, I'm sorry, Wayne, where, where did you, when they started to recognize that there was no relation to schizophrenia, what was the decade marker you set? It was in the 1930s and early 1940s. I believe that uh, Kanner started his work in 1933, if my memory serves me right. That might not be correct, but I think that's when he first started studying this as an actual thing of its own. Hans Asperger, that's, that's a different uh, kind of a scenario there. You're talking about it's around the same relative time frame that these two gentlemen work together. And, uh, you know, I use the term gentleman loosely because uh, Hans Asperger was actually known for being... Uh, one of the people in the Nazi party who uh, euthanized children with uh, mental disabilities and handicaps. So uh, that's another interesting little bit of history you won't hear much about. But uh, <laughs> Asperger's syndrome, uh, when it was first diagnosed, this was kind of like a, a higher functioning form of autism. Asperger kind of called it something different. And they didn't really recognize it as an actual condition until the early late 80s, early 90s, when uh, some of his research and stuff started becoming a little more popular once again. And then they, they classified it in the dsm 4 manual as its own separate condition. But now that they've advanced to the dsm 5 manual, now it's all lumped together under autism spectrum disorder. And that's another thing that gets confusing about this is they banty about these different terms and they always change the, the meanings of these terms from uh, you know each iteration of the manual to another. And uh, what that DSM is, that's the Diagnostic uh, Statistics Manual for anybody who wanted to look it up. And this is uh, basically like your, your mental health manual that uh, designates what different mental illnesses and stuff exist and how to categorize them. All right. So I think you kind of skirted around answering the question I'm about to ask you. This is this is why I wanted to know the decade marker. So we're talking in the 30s. They begin to give autism a definition that's independent of things like schizophrenia. Do you have any idea when we start to get, uh, how would I even say it, where it gets to be so out of hand that it's becoming epidemic, the idea of autism. So here we are in the 30s, and they're starting to define it as independent from these other mental disorders that they've defined. How many decades later before it starts becoming ec epidemic? Can you take a shot at that? I sure can. It doesn't really become epidemic until the 1990s. The, the mid-1990s is when it starts to really start to take off. Uh, up until that point, uh, it, it had a, a mild jump in the 1960s as it became more recognized as a condition. And uh, it wasn't until the 1980s when they started subcategorizing it and then recognizing more cases of it. But uh, it wasn't until, it didn't really spike until the 1990s. And that's when it started escalating to the point it is today. And uh, if you look at the CDC's own numbers today, they estimate that if something doesn't change within the next few years, by the year 2025, the number could be as high as one in two that have some form of autism. Wow. Which is, of course, over the top ridiculous. Right. And that's that's the whole thing. I mean, this is extremely concerning and they really don't seem to be putting any stock in trying to find out, first of all, what causes it. They do say that it's it's genetic, which is partially true. And we'll get to that later. But they just really don't 
seem to be putting a lot of stock in finding a cure. All they do is look for treatments like so many other things in the medical system. Yeah, the modern medicine, we're not going to cure you, but we're going to treat the symptoms because if we cure you, you quit buying pharmaceuticals. But I got, let's cut to the chase here real quick, Wayne. What is, of all the people out there in the world, you're saying one and two, that means a lot of parents out there with children who have autism. Within the actual living, real human being community that's not wrapped up in scientism or some other nonsense to do with pharmaceutical companies or however the medical definitions may come to be, the real people out there in the world dealing with this, do you have any sense of what they think is causing it? Is it chemicals in the things we wash our body with, chemicals in our food? Is it chemtrails? Is it inoculations? Is there any kind of confirmed sense of what the general population of real parents out there thinks is, is the contributing factor? The simple answer for that is yes. Everything you mentioned is, is contributory to this. I personally, I have two children with autism, so uh, this this wow. subject's very personal for me. So I I really have uh, kind of an inside track of a lot of the different information that comes about with this because it is so personal for me, and uh, I'm at a unique uh, place to speak about this. I would encourage anybody, of course, go and do your own research on this stuff. But uh, by and large, I think one of the biggest contributing factors to this is vaccines. Yeah, you mentioned vaccines actually in one of the earlier points. Were they using mercury-based preservatives for the vaccines even way back when? I believe they were, and I think that's one of the reasons why it kind of got grandfathered in and considered safe. I mean, if you go back even just a couple decades to the 1980s, I remember we used to have mercurochrome in the, the medicine cabinet. What was this? This was mercury. You got a, a cut or something on your finger, you put it on your finger to, he to help heal it. So uh, that's another story altogether. But uh, I believe they were using it as a preservative uh, back in the early days, and they, they never felt anything wrong with it because mankind had been using mercury as a medicine for many hundreds of years. So uh, I don't think they thought anything of it, never bothered to test uh, the safety of it. See, see, in my in my view, Wayne, this is the abs absolute misuse of alchemy. Um, anyone who wants to go get an initial look at alchemy will find out that the basic definition includes mercury. It, like you said, it's been used forever, but it's never been lost on anyone in the natural sciences what mercury will do to a human body when it's used in the kind of metallic form in in uh, you know the larger kingdom of alchemy, and that is exactly why on every episode of triple7radio.com at the very top I talk about unveiling the misuse of alchemy to transmute the world mind and in my view what you just laid down is exactly that but that's my point of view go ahead Jason so Wayne is the thing about the vaccines that you think has the direct link to autism is it the mercury or is there more to it than just that oh there's definitely more to it than just that Jason it's not just the mercury uh, the mercury in and of itself is, is kind of troubling, but uh, they'll tell you most vaccinations now don't even have the mercury in them. Uh, one that still does is the flu shot, and you see advertisements for that all over the place. So they want to hit you with this stuff as much as they can. Uh, I think the bigger contributor, more so than mercury, is the aluminum nanoparticles that are put in modern vaccines. And what is that for? Why is it there? Well, these are actually, they're an ingredient called an adjuvant. Now, what an adjuvant is, is it's supposed to help your body to garner an immune response to the antigen that's being put in your body. So that they put these adjuvants in there to get your body to react uh, more heartily to the antigen that they have in the vaccine so uh, that your body attacks this. And they put this aluminum in there as an adjuvant to get your body to react to it with an immune response. And that's one of the things that they put in vaccines. But uh, the problem with this is... There haven't really been any real safety studies. They will tell you your body will clear this aluminum from your system, like it'll filter it out through your liver and your kidneys and, and your body's immune response system. It'll filter it out before it has any chance to do any harm to you. But the thing that they're really not telling you about is uh, the other ingredients that they put in these vaccines with the aluminum, one of which being polysorbate 80. Have you heard of polysorbate 80? New to me. No, I've heard of it, but go ahead. What polysorbate 80 is, is this is uh, what's called a phospholipid. And uh, I could, uh, if you, anybody's interested, you could look up various research papers that talk about phospholipid, phospholipid coated uh, aluminum nanoparticles. And what this does is when these aluminum nanoparticles enter your system, 
they enter your body. Your body does not see them as being a threat. So they're allowed to uh, circulate through your body and enter your cells without uh, having an immune response to it. So what happens is these uh, aluminum nanoparticles and nanobots, we'll get to that too, are allowed free reign to circulate throughout your body and uh, absorb into your body's cells and your DNA and to cross the blood-brain barrier, which is a lot to do with this. The blood-brain barrier, this, I think, is is the key to what's going on. They're using these uh, nano uh, particles, uh, particularly these aluminum particles are entering the brain and causing a type of encephalitis, which I think is one of the contributing causes to autism. And it's also been linked with Alzheimer's as well. There's there's a lot of harm being done with these. Well, right off the bat here, it sounds like that you have a problem with heavy metals being directly injected into your body that goes right into the brain. Is that, is that a problem? Oh, yes, that could be a very big problem. And here's the other aspect of it that is so concerning. There's been a lot of research that has shown that uh, a lot of people who have autism have a specific gene mutation, and this is called the MTHFR gene. And what this gene does is this, this gene regulates methylation. So what this is is this is this gene controls your body's ability to eliminate heavy metals out of your body. So what happens in turn is these heavy metals accumulate in your cells. And over time, with more accumulation, they could cause all sorts of damage, especially across the blood-brain barrier. And this has uh, come about as being one of the recognized uh, gene mutations that's, that's common in patients with autism. So maybe we should just become the smartest guys in the medical field and say we understand that chemtrails include aluminum. You've just outlined endless uses of aluminum and inoculations and other things, but correct me if I'm wrong here, Wayne. The mainstream medical community pretty recently has been on the record as saying that one thing they notice across all autism or most autism people is an unusually high amount of aluminum in their brains. I mean, that's what mainstream is saying. Am I wrong here? No, you're correct. Uh, they're saying the same thing with Alzheimer's as well. And I think this is part and parcel of the same thing being used against us. It's a bit much to swallow when uh, we're still arguing with the feeble-minded who can't bother to go online and look up that chemtrails have been admitted now. Um, and all the lab reports from all over the world that show there's three typical heavy metals that have been located from lab reports associated with chemtrailing. But you don't even have to argue about the inoculations you're pointing out. It is what it is. Um, so I would ask, you know, and I know you can't add, it's a bit rhetorical what I'm about to say. How in the hell does the medical community walk around in such a haze when it's pretty clear we can identify sources for aluminum. I mean, it's beyond the pale, isn't it? I would say so. They even put aluminum in your deodorant. I mean, come on. I mean, it, we're inundated with it. So at some point, it's got to bioaccumulate in your body. And people who have like these specific conditions and gene mutations, their bodies can't process it out like normal people's can. So uh, this is causing damage, and a lot of the damage is neurological damage. And this is, this is what's going on. Honestly, I, I, I just can't understand why nobody in the medical community will actually look at solutions to this. Because they don't want to lose their jobs. Yeah, that's, that's what I was just going to say. They, they want to keep their jobs. First of all, most of the doctors and other medical workers, they're just listening from the top down. Just like with everything. That's how all of this stuff works. They are completely bought into the system, so whatever they're told in their schools and their papers and all that other crap, not saying that it's all bad, but they're just going to do whatever is expected of them, and that's that. They're going to go along to get along, and it's their gospel. So it sounds like to me, to boil all this down, that there's a genetic key to all of this, and they're just bombarding us in our ecosystem now, in so many ways with these heavy metals, and therefore we see a massive rise in autism. That's pretty much it, right, Wayne? Well, I would say that's definitely a part of it. Uh, the other part of it is uh, the genetic mutation thing. It's been uh, pretty obvious to me for some time now that uh, they're, they're messing around with our DNA. This has been going on. I mean, with the advent of this nanotechnology, they could do that. Uh, things like CRISPR, if you've heard of CRISPR, it, it's, it's relatively easy for them to do. Can you, define, they, can you define that, Wayne, so people understand? Uh, CRISPR is a tool that they use for uh, doing genetic manipulations, and it's actually relatively easy for them to do. Uh, what it involves is uh, a, a little uh, 
uh, nano machine pretty much is what it is. It's it's uh, uh, an enzyme. They uh, use it. It's called a Cas9 enzyme. Enzyme, excuse me. And uh, what this does is this will target a specific sequence of your DNA and trim it out. So, uh, and it, it could also uh, have a, a protein scaffold in it that it could place in there to replace it with something else. So they could completely change your DNA with this, or they could actually deactivate uh, part of your DNA sequence and uh, make uh, a certain gene so that it, it's, it doesn't, uh, what's the term I'm looking for? Do what it's supposed to do. No, it could cause it to mutate, yes, but uh, it'll, it could also just turn it off. It's like an off switch I so see. that it won't exhibit the trait that it's supposed to exhibit. It won't express it. Right, expression. That's what I was looking for. It won't, so, uh, the gene won't have expression. So, I mean, this kind of gives a new spin. Uh, one of the things that's been real popular for the last few years here is this, like, 23andMe. And, um, you know, the, the, the Veterans Administration sent out things to all veterans uh, that are using the VA medical care system that we need your DNA so we can give you better, better medical help. Um, what do you think, man? Are they collecting all this DNA, these corporations and everything else to target certain strains of people? Is that, I mean, because it certainly looks like, to me, that the mass push we saw in numerous places even national geographic got in the game send us your dna so we can figure out how humans migrated it, it, like a few years ago it just became all the rage let's get dna what do you think is there a possibility that all these places c collecting dna have the potential to misuse it and actually target certain genetic strains were you looking down my notes a little further, Crow? Uh, no, I'm, ju I'm, actually... just, I'm just smart. Like, no, <laughs> no I, I, I have the bullet points, I promise you. I'm not, I'm not trying to let the cat out of the bag. If I did, I apologize. No, that's okay. Let's go ahead and cover that. If you look at uh, NDAR and the NIH, uh, the NDAR, what this is, is this is the uh, National Database for Autism Research. This is actually a sub-department underneath the National Institutes of Health. And uh, what this is, this National Database for Autism Research, this is uh, a federal data repository that collects information on basically all of the individuals identified with autism in the United States. And uh, what makes this uh, really a concerning thing is that this group also shares information with uh, an international consortium called the Global Alliance for Genomics and Health. And what this consortium is, is it's, it's researchers, it's medical researchers internationally, and they share data. So they're sharing all of your medical data, not just, uh, you know, people with autism. But this is, this is what they're doing. They're collecting all of this medical information from everybody, and they're putting it into a database. And what they're using is they're using something called a GUID, and this is called a Global Unique Identifier. And this is a number. They attach a number to your biometrics and all of your health data. And their reasoning behind this is they, they assign it a number, but they supposedly keep your identity uh, confidential. Like, nobody who's looking at this data will know who you are, what your name is, per se. But they will know everything about you, uh, physically and biologically, and any of your data. So this is a concerning thing. And this, they're actually working on doing a shared public ledger with it. Uh, using blockchain. So they're tying all this into blockchain. God. You know, I'm starting to get depressed here, and I actually do see the the uh, abbreviation here, and I apologize. I didn't realize that it was related to the question I just asked. You know, this is getting depressing. Maybe we should take a break and hand out some genetically modified cotton candy to the listeners so they can cheer up a little bit. But let me let me back up a couple steps here and pull us on track. I'm, I'm sorry for jumping the rails there. I did see that in the bullet points and didn't realize. Um, in, in, so far in, we've talked about transhumanism, post-genderism, and autism. So I'm going to ask the obvious question. Is there a relation between autism, post-genderism, what's called hypermasculinity, and another word which you may have to de define called dysphoria? Yeah, we'll, we'll look at this. Uh, there's definitely a connection there. Autism, uh, one of the models for autism, one of the explanations they give for what autism is, is this is actually an expression of hypermasculinity is what they call it. And this is an actual uh, rhetorical model of autism that they look at. It's called the hypermasculinity model of autism. And basically uh, what this states is that uh, people with autism tend to exhibit more masculine traits such as uh, 
you know, the, the need to organize and uh, the need to be more analytical of things, like as far as with the use of logic and things like that, rather than being more emotional, which is more generally related to the feminine aspect of things. So this hyper-masculinity model is uh, basically expressed uh, through popular entertainment by by characters such as uh, Sheldon Cooper on Big Bang Theory, which I know you talk about a lot, uh, Mr. Spock from uh, the original Star Trek. The, these are all expressions of uh, what they call rhetorical autism. So they put this in the entertainment as well. Well, that's what they always do to get used to the concepts. But not being overly emotional or social, that's a major issue with autism, correct? Yes, it is. But they also uh, term this as being a, a hyper-masculine trait as being kind of socially cold and more analytical and more infatuated with looking at things and mechanical things, things like that, technology. And that, that's the whole key, is this is a tie-in for technology. And that's where the uh, transhuman link comes. And to address Crow's other question about uh, dysphoria, gender dysphoria. Now, this is the old term that psychologists use for people who are transgender. They're gender dysphoric. They used to categorize this as a mental illness. They don't anymore. And uh, gender dysphoria rates are, are higher in individuals with autism. And a lot of this uh, goes back to uh, this post-genderism push. This is how this all links together. Because they, what they're trying to do is they're, they're trying to eliminate the genders altogether. And autism is, uh, you know... One of those aspects of uh, where gender kind of gets pushed to the side uh, in individuals with autism is, is kind of a, a rhetorical view of it. You don't, you don't really see many love stories or anything about people with autism. Like it's, it's not something that's accepted in the public framework that, that autistic people have normal relationships. Some of them do, don't get me wrong, but uh, it's not really something that's pushed in the social mainstream. This all seems to tie in with the destruction of the family unit that they've been doing for decades. You nailed it again there, Jason. You know it. <laughs> That's, uh, this all plays a, a role in it. Now, uh, the other way autism uh, relates to transhumanism is uh, artificial intelligence has been compared to autism. And uh, that's, that's one of the key aspects is they, they think... Uh, the autistic brain is more compatible to be merged with technology than the regular human brain. So uh, they've, they've done a lot of different, uh, you could actually find articles that compare machine learning and artificial intelligence learning to autism learning. And a lot of this ties to a model of uh, general intelligence called the VPR model, which is the uh, verbal, perceptual, and image rotational model of intelligence. And this identifies two facets of intelligence, which are one. The first one's called fluid intelligence, which is basically your entrenched uh, capacities, your reasoning, logic, that kind of thing. And then the second aspect of this is called crystallized intelligence. And this is stuff that you can learn over time. This is your vocabulary and things like this. And they found that uh, people with autism have more of these entrenched, these fluid intelligence capacities, but they, they lack a lot of the crystallized t uh, intelligence aspects of it. So it, it's interesting to look at. But uh, basically, what it boils down to is uh, a large body of evidence has shown that uh, sensory discrimination and sensory acuity abilities are commonly enhanced in autism compared to controls across auditory and visual domains. So this means that... Uh, People with autism are, are more in tune with their environment. They're more perceptive. They pick up on things that most people don't. The only problem is they lack the ability to express what they're picking up. Let me jump in here for a second, Jason. We're getting closer to the top of the hour, but there's two ideas that I absolutely want to squeeze into the first hour here. Um, the Neanderthal model of autism is one, and then the idea of super soldiers. But I'm sorry for interrupting. Go ahead. In what jobs and or sections of society would autistic people flourish and why would that benefit the controlling factors in this world, since obviously it looks like there are going to be a lot more autistic people in the world over the next few decades? Good question, Jason. And I'm glad you asked it, because uh, one of the, uh, the big things is a lot of these people seem to flourish in uh, engineering jobs, uh, computer IT jobs, 
uh, and even as in military intelligence. In fact, uh, the Israeli armis, army actively recruits uh, autistic individuals. This relates to hypermasculinity as you defined it, right? Using Sheldon Cooper, these are just very analytical minds, which are then classified as tending more to, to, to masculine, regardless of the individual with autism as female or male to begin with, right? Is that correct? Right. That's that's partially uh, what's going on with this. They tend to uh, migrate more towards computers and technology more than human social interaction. They, they have an easy time with this stuff and they, they process it very well. They process information in a similar fashion to a computer in a lot of different ways. And that's why uh, the transhumanist community uh, is interested in, in having these people working with the tech. So uh, it's it's really uh, kind of a strange thing, and uh, I, I will be touching more on this in my book. So it, it's definitely an, an interesting topic to look at. And to back you up on that, Wayne, last night I read an article from somebody who works for Microsoft in their hiring department where they have a program where they are specifically looking to hire autistic people and bring them into the workforce of Microsoft. So there oh, was man. the proof right there. Wow. Just wow. Whew. Yes. Right. The thing is, this, this whole autism thing goes a lot deeper than anybody's realized. And I'm just starting to, you know, dig out some of the, the key points to it. And uh, <clears throat> it definitely plays a role in, uh, you know, the, the technology, the coming technological control grid and the artificial intelligence. And Crow, you had mentioned about uh, super soldiers. And uh, let's go ahead and talk about that as it relates to autism at this point. I identified 16 key traits that occur naturally, well, I, I don't know if I could say naturally, but within folks who have autism that actually are desired super soldier traits. So if we want to go ahead and look at these, we could. Let's uh, do it. The first thing that you would look for in a super soldier would be, number one, enhanced senses. What do we know about people with autism? They have hypersensitivities and they have great attention to detail. They notice things you and I don't. Uh, like I could tell you, my 10-year-old son has autism. He has a hard time with different textures. Like he does not like zippers in his clothing. They bother him. Uh, most people wouldn't even, wouldn't even realize wearing something with a zipper on it. He knows. Same thing with buttons. He doesn't like things with buttons, anything that touches his skin. He also uh, has a hard time if he's in crowds. He has, actually has a, a set of headphones he has to wear because the noise is too much for him. So uh, they, they do have these enhanced senses, and that's something that's desirable in a super soldier. So uh, let's look at the, the number two thing that uh, would be a desired super soldier trait. The ability to follow orders without concern for others. Now, it's, it's well known that many people with autism have a lack of empathy. They have a hard time empathizing with the, the feelings and and stuff of other people. So uh, this is another trait that they'd be looking for for a super soldier. The uh, third thing that we could look at would be an enhanced spatial intelligence. And once again, this kind of relates back to the enhanced senses thing. But uh, it's, it's uniquely different because uh, individuals with autism have higher spatial intelligence overall compared to control models of, of different groups. This has been borne out in a lot of studies. Uh, so uh, a lot of these people with autism have heightened uh, spatial awareness so uh, they notice things like i said more than than normal people will they notice more details fine details of things that most people would miss you know wayne right there that makes it sound like they'd make excellent snipers oh yeah definitely i mean that's that's one one thing altogether or they'd also make excellent drone operators and and that's i, I think one of the things that uh, the israeli army recruits autistic people for is to be drone operators they also have, uh, you know, this, this affinity for video games, uh, which also plays into that. Let's look at the fourth characteristic for this. Uh, the fourth desired super soldier trait would be a reduced need for sleep. Anybody who knows anything about autism knows that this is a biological fact. People with autism, their body doesn't produce enough melatonin, which is the chemical receptor that helps you to fall asleep. So, uh, my son actually has to supplement with melatonin to go to sleep at night. Otherwise, he won't sleep at all. So this is another thing. Uh, a, a soldier that, that doesn't have a need for sleep as much as the, your standard person. Let's see. Let's look at the, uh, the next desired trait for a super soldier would be some sort of specialized skills or photographic memory. Now, uh, autism is the only mental disorder that has a high rate of savantism, if you've heard of savantism. 
Now, this these are people that have special skill sets, like they they excel in one particular thing, and uh, this that is the only only thing, the only diagnosis of uh, mental illness that has this increased rate of savantism in it is autism, and it's a well known thing. I mean, this is where your movie Rain Man. This is what this looks at. Also, many people with autism have an improved memory, an almost photographic memory. So uh, this is another uh, key trait that's looked for in super soldiers. Number six, we're on the, the sixth one now, is the ability to use technology effectively. And uh, as I mentioned earlier, in another point up there, is uh, many people with autism have an affinity for technology, especially computers. Number seven, attention to detail. People with uh, autism and uh, a desired trait for a super soldier would be this attention to detail, this high visual acuity and hyper-focus. People with autism will focus in on one thing and pay attention to nothing else around them. So this is a desirable skill for a soldier in certain situations. The eighth one would be uh, the ability to perform duties without distraction. And once again, this ties back to this uh, whole ability of, of people with autism to hyper-focus on something. So uh, there's this hyper-focus fact of it where they pay a little attention to the environment around them and focus only on the task at hand. So this, this allows them, they, they'll stop at nothing to get their task done. And that's something that's highly, highly desirable for a soldier. Uh, the ninth one is, number nine, not distracted by sexual desires or romantic relationships. And this one corresponds to, uh, to the autistic trait of uh, what they call asexuality or a lack of interest in romantic relationships. Now, this isn't exhibited across the board with all people on the autism spectrum, but there is a, a large portion of it that is the case where they, they just don't have any interest in forming that romantic bond with somebody. Number 10, a desirable trait is a metabolically dominant soldier. And this equates to the autistic trait of having a fast metabolism, which most people with autism do have a very fast metabolism. What does that actually mean? Can you define that a little bit better? Specifically, what does that mean? Uh, that means they metabolize their food much more quickly and efficiently. They don't necessarily put on a lot of weight. Like oh, they, they don't get fat as easily. They don't put on a lot of body fat like your standard person would. They could eat a large amount of food and still burn off all the calories without actually putting on weight. That, that's a common trait among autistic uh, people, is most of them you'll notice are, are thin. It's very rare if you find like an overweight autistic person. And not to say it doesn't happen, it does, but I mean, this is one of the traits that they look for. Gotcha. Let's move on to number 11. Number 11, high intelligence. And a lot of research has shown that a lot of these people with autism do have high intelligence. And there is also a link, and we'll get to this a little later on, uh, that relates to that whole Neanderthal theory of autism. Uh, they found a genetic connection to high intelligence in the genes of autistic people, and they relate these genes back to uh, the Neanderthals is what they claim. So uh, we'll get into that a little more later. This is a complicated subject, and we'll, we'll break it down a little bit better later when we get that far. Number 12 on the list would be enhanced strength. And hormonal stressors trigger short bursts of increased strength in autistic people. If you've ever seen an autistic meltdown, it doesn't, it's not pretty. So uh, they, they do have this increased capacity for strength when they're having these meltdowns. And if, uh, if they could find a way to uh, control this short burst of strength, they could utilize it in different desirable ways for a super soldier. So, Wayne, I'm going to have to cut in here. Um, we're about to the top of the hour. We still need to get the music and everything in in the intro, um, and we have to have an even hour to run in some of the places this show will run. So, for everybody listening, uh, the remaining bullet points from the 16 autism traits that are de desirable for super soldiers will be pushed into the second hour. Um, Jason and I have launched a new Crow 777 live radio show with a live chat on Truth Frequency Radio that occurs every Sunday night 
at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Um, I hope to see you all over at Crow777Radio.com. And among all the episodes we do, it's episodes like this that should inform people. Quit looking at the details and start to look at the macro. Look at the big picture. We're drawing lines every which direction that pretty much demonstrates to me these are not random events in society as so many of us treat them. Anyhow, that is hour one of episode 125. Please join us over at crow 7 radiocom to support free speech. There it is, man. Cheers.